It's on page 248, I think. We'll also be thinking about Psalm 51. You might have noticed that was going to be one of the readings, but um, we'll sing it. Um, is that right? We'll sing it after the sermon. Well, uh, Nathan, um, he was a great preacher, wasn't he? I mean, he sure gets David in, doesn't he? By the end of Nathan's parable in verse 4, David is in the grip of self-righteous religious fervor, the type that many of us enjoy enormously. As we see from verses 5 and 6, if, if Nathan had just concluded his sermon at verse 4, David would have gone home all fired up. And David has had all of his religious muscles exercised, having been moved to pity the poor man who lost his beloved ewe lamb. And, after all, pity makes us feel good about ourselves by allowing us to look down on others. And then Nathan's sermon moved David to self-righteous indignation at the thoughtless, callous sense of entitlement evident in the rich man. And boy, oh boy, is self-righteous indignation enjoyable. Because, after all, once again, it allows us to feel good about ourselves by allowing us to look down on others. Up to verse 4, this is an excellent religious sermon. But Nathan actually didn't finish his sermon at verse 4, and because he didn't, David moves from religious hypocrisy to gospel reality, which is dealing direct with God. Well, uh, last week we read about David and Bathsheba and we saw how one little sin, which is David uh, staying in Jerusalem when he should have been out in the field, one little sin led to a whole batch of really big sins. We saw how David was going to hell and he was taking his kingdom with him except that God might intervene. But that story ended with a note of hope. Uh, the Lord turns up uninvited, but the Lord turns up because the thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. And so he sends in Nathan. And Nathan's parable, it really does tug at our heartstrings, doesn't it? Um, it's a great parable. True to the nature of parables, uh, the characters are unnamed. And as we often see in parables, two characters are presented to us that are opposites. A rich man with any number of flocks and herds and a poor man who owns nothing except one little ewe lamb. Um, in our English translations, the little ewe lamb, um, the, the, the little female sheep, is um, baby sheep, is, is thereafter referred to by way of a neuter pronoun. It shared his food, drank from his cup. It was like a daughter to him. And that's fine and that's right because that's how we refer uh, to animals in English. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, uh, the correct pronoun for a she-lamb is the feminine pronoun. And so in Hebrew, actually, the story is a really personal story. And he raised her. And she grew up with him and his sons together. From his morsels she ate, and from his cup she drank, and in his arms she lay down. 
And she was like a daughter to him. And later, and he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he prepared her for the man who had come. Just to, I guess, just to experience the impact of this for yourself, try using masculine and feminine pronouns when you refer to the roast at your next dinner party. Do you like the lamb? Would you like more of him? How's the chicken? Can I offer you some more of her? David's heartstrings are are pulled, and as we've already considered, you know, it really gets him right in until Nathan plunges in the homiletical dagger at verse 7. You are the man. And true to the nature of parables, Nathan's parable is not an allegory where each element of the story stands for something in real life. And that's worth pointing out here that parables aren't allegories because we, um, so that we don't think that the ewe lamb stands for Bathsheba. She is not to be compared or equated with livestock. Nor does the poor man stand for Uriah the Hittite. The poor man lost only his pet sheep. Uriah lost his wife and his life. Rather, as is usually the case with parables, it's not an allegory, but rather it's an analogy, a comparison between one thing and another thing for the purpose of explanation or clarification, with one or more points of resemblance between the things being compared. And so then, the point of the resemblance between Nathan's parable and David's dealings is that David has revealed himself to be an evil, thoughtless, callous, rich man who, out of a sense of entitlement, committed adultery and murder. David sees this and, overwhelmed, confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan is indeed a great preacher, not because he presented a technically excellent parable, nor because he excited in David's self-righteous religious zealotry, but rather he is a great preacher because he got David to deal with God direct and personal. And that is the point of Christian ministry. It's important also that we, we look closely at God's judgment the judgment that comes through the through the voice of through the, the mouth of Nathan, we should see that it's a um, theocentric judgment. In other words, and to be precise, David is not in trouble because of what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, but rather because of what he did to God. Three times we find the word despise. In verse 9, we read that David despised the word of the Lord by doing what he did. In other words, he despised the Bible. He despised the law of Moses. He treated it with contempt. He despised God's word. In doing that, he treated God with contempt. You treat God's word with contempt, you're treating God with contempt. In verse 10, again, we understand that David despised God in his actions. He treated God with contempt. Furthermore, in verse 14, there is a phrase that's, that's difficult to translate, and we're not exactly sure of its meaning. You'll see that there's a footnote that, that gives a phrase that perhaps should be in it somehow. Um, I think that the right meaning of the verse might be this. Because you cause the enemies of the Lord to utterly despise the Lord in this thing. 
Um, David's very public sin gave strength to those people in Israel who ignore God and mock those who put uh, their faith in him. David therefore despised or treated with contempt God's holy word, God himself, and in doing this, he gave public support to those who were already treating God with contempt. David trashed his reputation, but in doing so, he trashed God's reputation. And God is holding, God is holding David to account for what David has done to God. Therefore, in the face of this theocentric, God-centered judgment, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, David prays to God saying, Against you, only you, have I sinned. And David has certainly trespassed grievously against Bathsheba and Uriah and many, many, many others. But what we've got to understand is that the real, eternal, true problem is that when we sin against others... We sin against God, and that places us in eternal jeopardy. According to the law of Moses, the punishment for murder and the punishment for adultery were both death by stoning. According to the law of Moses, there can be no forgiveness for David. There is no sacrifice that can be offered for this high-handed sin. There is only one course of action, and that's condemnation. It is therefore startling that Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's astonishing. David is not condemned. How could that be? David is forgiven. How? That's a mystery. God did make David a promise back in chapter 5 that he would never forsake David's sons. If they sinned, they would be punished, but they'd never be abandoned or forsaken. But that promise was to David's sons, not explicitly to David as well. How can this be? Well, I I think that, that we can know that this can only be through Christ and the cross that David is forgiven. And of course, all of this being a thousand years before Jesus, the original readership of this book couldn't have known that. However, this book would have prepared them for Christ by showing them clearly that the law of Moses ultimately does not work. It reveals to us our sin without giving us the remedy for our sin. It cannot save us. All it does is point to the need we have for a savior. There are other aspects of God's judgment we should consider. Although David is forgiven, that is to say he will still belong to God and God will still belong to him, there are consequences for his sin, severe consequences. God cannot be mocked, as we sow, so shall we reap. And so others will do to David as he has done to others, and so he himself will have wives taken from him, and the sword will be at work in his family forever. This is a curse. Also, although David is forgiven, the son born to David and Bathsheba will suffer and die. 
And how are we to make sense of that? I mean, that's, that's just plainly repugnant to us, isn't it? Uh, I mean, um, the baby is completely innocent in all of this. So why should he suffer and die in David's place? Well, I'm about to try to answer that question. Although I, I, I need to point out that my answers are conjectural. In other words, I'm guessing. But in terms of the narrative, I guess the first point is that God is punishing David and the death of a child is in this life perhaps the most severest of trials, the deepest of griefs. griefs. And so David is being severely disciplined for his sins. In terms of the theology of the Bible as a whole, I guess we know now from our point of view in history that a resurrection is surely coming. So we can understand that although this baby boy will miss out on all of the pleasures and of, of all of the pains of this world, in the light of eternity, actually, this baby boy misses out on basically nothing at all. Because he's with the Lord. And he is saved and safe and home. He's with Jesus eternally. And in terms of typology, what we can see here in terms of, of, of how this story points us to Jesus, what we can see here is that the son of David, who is innocent, must suffer and die in satisfaction for the sins of David, who is guilty, in order that the guilty party might be forgiven and allowed to live. And so I guess what I'm saying is that so many things in this chapter just make no sense at all except in the light of Jesus Christ. You see, David's curse, and he is cursed, David's curse falls on Jesus, the son of David. He suffered and died to atone for David's sin, as well as actually for my sin and for yours as well. In him is the resurrection and the life. In Christ, there is no condemnation. With him, there is forgiveness. So David's little baby boy, although he disappears nameless from the Bible, dying on the seventh day, he is alive with Christ. And I believe that he has the satisfaction now of knowing that he blamelessly and perfectly did the one job every human being is created to do. That is, to point people to Jesus in this life. As David responds to God's judgment, his, his responses are exemplar. They, they are astonishing. Um, verse 13, David confesses. In contrast to Adam, Eve, Saul, and many, many others who tried to sidestep their culpability or offer explanations or rationalizations or dodge the blame, David offers no excuses, no explanations, no rationalizations. He just says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now in chapter 11, David was ascending this kind of golden staircase of absolute power, absolute corruption. One way to deal with Nathan here in chapter 12 is to simply remind him that he's not king. And then you could have, of course, you know, David has the power to have Nathan punished, banished, imprisoned, or put to death. Plenty of kings will go that way after David, including, of course, Jeroboam, Ahab, Azariah, um, Manasseh, and many, many others. 
It's actually no small thing that David, the king, even though he's king, he accepts rebuke from a prophet, a man who is lower than himself with respect to the social hierarchy of his day, and yet nevertheless was set above him by the Lord in terms of spiritual authority. Um, David, he doesn't have to, he's king, but he accepts God's word as God's word through the prophet. And he puts himself under it. And that's miraculous, that's astonishing. Plenty of people are willing to accept God's word as God's word, but not put themselves under it. Rather, they judge it. David lets it judge him. He accepts it as God's word through the prophet, and in doing that, he is saved. He receives salvation. Forgiveness from God. And as a response to that, as a response to receiving grace, he's got grace to pass on to others. From now, he will be a most forgiving man. Verses 15 to 17, David finally, thankfully, David, the man of prayer, returns to prayer. And by way of intercession, David pushes God to change his mind. By intercession, David is driven by a father's love and concern for his child. He pushes God to change his mind. He pushes God to change his mind, ever confident that with God, mercy triumphs over judgment. So he spends seven days negotiating and negotiating hard in God's presence, praying. And again, this is in contrast to Eli and Hezekiah and so many other people in the Old Testament who just fatalistically accept what they hear from God with no, with no return at all. Oh, uh, let God do what's good in his sight. I guess this is going to be as it's going to be. Um, no, da- David knows that you can negotiate with God. David knows that the gift of time is the gift of an opportunity. That you can change, and he knows that you can that you can you can negotiate with God. There's still time to pray, to fast. He weeps, he begs, all night vigils and sackcloth for clothing. He intercedes for the sick child, and this is exactly what he should be doing. And to my surprise, and I think probably to David's surprise, God did not change his mind. And in response to that, in verse 20, in response to his prayers being answered with a no, David worships. He he trusts God completely. You can find the the, the words for this in Psalm 51. All all of your judgments are true and right. You're, you're, You're right in everything you do and say. He accepts God's judgment as perfect, holy. He doesn't understand it. It's not what he wanted. But it's what God's done. And everything that God does is perfect and holy and righteous and just. I'm going to go in and worship and praise God. And verse 24, having worshipped God, David moves to to comfort others, comforting his wife Bathsheba. Um, It's interesting, and I think, again, exemplar, that David doesn't try to undo the past but rather he now commits himself to live the present faithfully. So Bathsheba is not abandoned or put aside. On the contrary, it seems that both the Lord and David have it in mind, like-mindedly, to comfort Bathsheba through the provision of another child who comes, we are told three times, loved by the Lord. And, and so David is also comforted. Um, God has answered David's prayers. Not, just not in the way that David wanted at the time. 
And I, I actually think this is a very powerful thing. When we, can, when we can thank and praise and worship God when his answer to our prayer is no, it, it opens up the vista for receiving special yeses that, that we, we didn't think of or imagine. If we can trust God when he says no, that's a powerful thing. And in verses uh, 29 to the end of the chapter, we see a thoroughly chastened and a repentant David return to what he should have been doing in the first place, leading the armies of Israel in the defeat of the enemies of God's people. So, so, so that's, that's moving through the text, talking about what we see. Um, what I'd like to do is now return to the beginning, and I'm just going to conclude with some of the things that this text says to me what this text says to me. And allow me again to start with, with Nathan's sermon. Um, I am increasingly wary of Christian ministry that seeks to move me with pity into action on behalf of the less fortunate or inflame me with self-righteous indignation at the atrocities now being committed by the wicked at home or abroad. In fact, there is a Christian organization that Joe and I support um, and we're committed to supporting and it's a great organization and it does wonderful work and we support it by way of regular monthly donations. It's a good organization, but I will no longer read their emails or open their letters or read any of their circulars. And this is because whenever I do, I am filled with white-hot anger at the atrocities being inflicted against God's people in other countries and with fear as to what the world is coming to. And that's my problem. It's not the organization's problem. It's my problem. And indeed, those kind of strong emotions might be very effective if your aim is to get money out of people. But what gospel ministry should provoke in me, if it is done properly, is repentance of my own evil. Really, actually, I should be filled with white-hot anger at my own sins, because there's plenty of them, and that's something I can do something about. Gospel ministry, when it's done properly, should provoke me to repentance of my own evil and love for my enemies, that I might pray for them and bless them. The persecuted church, sure, it needs our prayers, but I tell you what, it doesn't need our prayers nearly as much as the persecutors need our prayers. Gospel ministry puts the crosshairs on me, not on others. I am the man. Gospel ministry, in contrast to religious piety and the power of the Holy Spirit, moves people to deal with God direct through Jesus Christ. I am the man. The problem is me. That's something I can do something about. With Jesus. The answer is Christ. And we should all come to church in order to deal direct with God through Jesus. Moving on to God's judgment. Today's passage puts the fear of God into me with respect to the reality of representing God, which is something all of us do if we're known as Christians. Um, this week, some of us may have heard on the radio um, um, about the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Adelaide, Philip Wilson, being found guilty in the landmark ruling of concealing child sexual abuse. Um, he may go to jail, 
for up to two years. I don't know if that judgment has come to light yet. No. Well, he may go to jail, custodial sentence. Um, what he's done is aided and abetted priest uh, Jim Fletcher by concealing Fletcher's abuse of children in New South Wales in the 1970s. And these are grievous sins, terrible crimes that are hideously destructive in many ways. At the human level, justice is essential before there can be forgiveness, reconciliation, and the healing of broken hearts and lives. But spiritually, there is another danger. There is other damage that we need to consider, and that's the damage to God's reputation. These things give ammunition to those who want to see God's church in retreat, who see Christian faith as something evil and wrong, and who want to push Christian witness into the margins and then over the cliff. And perhaps when that happens, when that day comes when it is illegal to meet in Christ's name, perhaps when, when this happens, your faith and my faith in Christ may not be lessened. But what will happen is that many people who are perhaps weak in their faith or young or new to their, to their faith, they will be persuaded to turn away from Jesus. And that's an eternal disaster. For, for, for the sake of the little ones, all of us who call ourselves Christian should turn away from sin, any sin, all sin. Gross, illegal sins, obviously, but also the sin that is culturally norm. All sin is contempt for God and for his word and strengthens the hand of those who hold God in contempt. Spiritually, this is war, and we just need to remember whose side we're on. Moving on to David's response. David reminds me of what Holy Spirit-prompted repentance looks like. And you know what? It's joyful. Not in the sense of happy, but in the sense that the repentant person is filled with gratitude for being forgiven, filled with the desire to know God better, filled with horror that they'd put their relationship with God in jeopardy, filled with pleasure at the thought of serving God better, filled with joy at the thought of leading others into relationship with him too. Psalm 51 gives us David's words. It gives us what it's like to know this and to pray this. Well, <clears throat> this is the last of this year's 10-part series on the life of David from 2 Samuel. God willing, we will return to David next winter and read together the last third of his life. Now may God's word bear much fruit for his glory in our lives as we meditate on it together, allowing it to judge us allowing it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts to the praise and glory of God, and in Jesus' name, amen.